1: which is the story of when the Israelites finally make it to the promised land. After 40 years in the wilderness, in this text, the book of Joshua, we're going to see another miraculous water crossing. They're going to be crossing the river Jordan on dry ground, and they come into the land of Canaan. To commemorate this, they're going to place 12 stones, to help them to remember this long promised day. And when they do this and they come to the land of Canaan, we'll read about the manna ceasing. They're going to have to take care of themselves now. The main theme of the book of Joshua is conquest. How Joshua's people unleash violence upon those that are different than they are. And because they're God's chosen people, they are told to wipe out everyone in the land. Essentially, the whole book of Joshua is a lot of killing. We will see the surrounding of the city of Jericho and the walls of Jericho coming down in this book. Chapter 11 says that they conquer the whole land, destroying many cities. Now, this is complicated because the book of Joshua will then say later that they didn't conquer the whole land. And so there are these conflicting accounts in the book of Joshua as to what happened. Did they or did they not conquer the place? Did they or did they not cast out the people that were not like them? chapters 13 through 21, the land is divided among the tribes. They then set up the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh. And then finally, Israel receives their promised rest. Joshua exhorts them to be courageous and to keep the commandments of the Lord and then he dies. Joshua and Eleazar die. And the bones of Joseph that they brought with them, the Israelites brought the bones of Joseph with them all the way from Egypt. They're then buried in Shechem. And Shechem's that place, that city that's at the base of the two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Those mountains where Moses gives his final speech in Deuteronomy on the east side. And now the Israelites are on the west side in Shechem. And so that's a brief overview of what's happening in the book of Joshua. It begins with the Lord speaking to and through Joshua, and it ends with Joshua's final speech. And then the next book will be the book of Judges, where we have the problems associated with the Israelites not keeping the rules. Now, before we get into this, I just want to offer this disclaimer. When I read the book of Joshua, I read it a little bit differently, and just because I read it this way doesn't mean I'm right. I tend to think that a fair amount of the things going on in the conquest narrative in the book of Joshua, I see these many of these things as exaggerated. I believe that parts of the account are figurative and that the author, whoever it is that put together the book of Joshua, is using hyperbole to make a point. But just because there's scholarship and archaeological evidence supporting my opinions It doesn't mean I'm right. I know that there are many of us who take the text very literal, and that's okay. If you're in that camp and trust that this account is entirely accurate, there is definitely space for that. Many people agree with this argument, that the book of Joshua is literal. But for me, I don't take the book of Joshua literally because I believe that position aligns better with our theology against violence. I love the Bible. I hope that's clear. The Old Testament is probably my favorite book of scripture. But that being said, I don't think the authors always accurately portrayed their history or the nature of God. I mean, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've seen examples where the text is self-contradictory on all kinds of things. And so when I read the book of Joshua, I read it and I say, okay, what was the author trying to convey? How did they view the world? And what messages does that hold for us today? So as we go into the book of Joshua, that's going to be my approach, but I always like to get into the root and say, okay, then what were they teaching and why were they writing this way? Because I think if we can get into their head and see how they viewed things, it will help us understand the scriptures. Right. We have a challenge
0: with the book of Joshua. If you read the text as it exists, boy, it sure seems to contradict a lot of modern theology about war and about conflict. Now, I totally understand that, according to the Bible, the Canaanites have hit the fullness of iniquity and that the Lord is going to sweep them off the sacred soil, but I just don't think it's ever appropriate for the Lord's covenant people to be the tool of destruction. Yes, I know that Nephi killed Laban, but then he says, it is better that one man should perish than that a whole nation should dwindle in unbelief. This is wiping out an entire nation. And so there's got to be some balancing principles. Let me tell you why I believe this is really important at this time that we balance that. Social media has given a microphone to everyone. Everyone now has a podium and a microphone to be heard. And a lot of fringe groups have taken that microphone and aggressively attack people that disagree with themselves, a la Joshua's people. There's a lot of groups out there who feel like the Lord is on their side, they have a cause, and that they're going to go destroy their neighbors and tear down anyone who opposes them, and people are throwing darts at each other, and it's causing good people to go silent because they don't want to be attacked, and that seems to be what's happening in our society And it's right here in front of us in the book of Joshua. They're almost acting like the Israelites in Joshua saying, God's with us and we're going to destroy you, so get out of our way. So I feel compelled to balance the book of Joshua today with modern revelation. Now, some of you have written to us saying, why do you guys keep quoting the Book of Mormon? This is Old Testament year. But that's why we believe the Bible has been edited It's lost plain and precious truths, and as so, is not going to lead us down the path we need to go unless we restore those plain and precious truths as they've been presented in modern revelation. The very reason Mormon resigns from leading the Nephite army in his day, I think it's fair to say it's because they were acting like the people in Joshua's day that they are doing the very things that we're going to read the Israelites doing in Joshua's day, and that was enough for Mormon to say, I'm done, I'm out. If you're going to act like that, I will not lead you anymore. And so something's going on here, and we're going to have a struggle here with the book of Joshua, unless we bring in the plain and precious truths of the book of Mormon that balance what we're reading in Joshua and help us understand the Lord's perspective on conflict.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think what the main problem is with the book of Joshua is the portrayal of God, that God is shown to be vindictive, murderous, and possibly even tyrannical, because he's demanding a complete and total destruction of these people, as you refer to. The inhabitants of the land of Canaan are to be completely wiped out. Now, this is coming out of a couple of different texts. Probably the main text is the 20th chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 16 through 19, God says in Deuteronomy 20, Thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. Thou shalt utterly destroy them. And then it goes to a list of the individuals that are to be destroyed. That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should ye sin against the Lord your God. When thou shalt besiege a city a long time in making war against it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof. So in the words of Deuteronomy 20, the author has God saying, to wipe everything out except for the trees. And you can go further and read Deuteronomy 7, verses 20 and 23 and 24. Those texts are basically saying, we've got to wipe them all out. And then if you look at Joshua 6, verse 21, they're told to kill the livestock. And then included on the list of people to be killed are even the Israelites. Israelites who are rebellious are to be killed. This is right out of the beginning of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 18. He that doth rebel against this commandment and will not hearken unto the words and all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Now, we're going to see that in the story of Achan, which is in Joshua 7, verse 21. He is killed because he did not follow the commands of God. Not just he, but he, his family, his possessions, his
0: animals,
1: his children, the whole group are slaughtered because of his mistake. This is so difficult. This in scholarship was called corporate punishment, and corporate punishment and corporate blessings are a big part of the Old Testament. If one person in a family does something, either good or bad, then it blesses the corporate entity of the family. And biblical writers struggled with this idea, am I responsible for the sins of my father or am I as an individual responsible for these things? And there seems to be a tendency in scholarship as they look at the Bible to see a progression in theological understanding of this, meaning that after the temple was destroyed, there became a new view of how God works, and it became to be known that God was looking at us as individuals, but that prior to the destruction of the temple, corporate punishment seemed to be a common theological perspective. Now, I know that's a broad statement, and it's more complicated than this, But at least in the book of Joshua, it's like this all or nothing book and everybody's got to be wiped out, at least from the perspective of the authors of Deuteronomy 20, even innocent children and livestock. Now, the book of Mormon clearly states that children are innocent, Moroni chapter 8 Doctrine and Covenant, section 68, and then we even referenced in the show notes a comment by Boyd K. Packer, an apostle of Jesus Christ, where he emphasizes the innocence of little children. So as I read Joshua, I look at this through the lens of modern prophets. I'm going to use the Book of Mormon as a lens. But I also understand that when we look at the Old Testament and we read it through the lens of the Book of Mormon, we're going to come to different conclusions. In fact, in early Christianity, one of the first Christian canon ever put together before Orthodox Christianity developed a canon, it was developed by a guy by the name of Marcion. Marcion lived from 85 to 160 AD, so he was one of the first Christians to do this. And he looked at Joshua and he said, this is not Jesus. So he rejected the whole book of Joshua. And as he pondered more, he said, you know what? I don't even like the Old Testament. So in his canon, he completely rejected the Old Testament and developed his own canon, which was essentially the the gospel of Luke in 10 Pauline epistles. And it's because of Marcion, a lot of historians say that we even have a Bible because in response to Marcion, Christian bishops got together and discussed, okay, Marcion is rejecting the Old Testament, but we see the Old Testament as the foundation, the bedrock of what it means to follow Jesus. What are we going to do? And so they got together and they developed a canon. It took a few hundred years, but by about the fourth century, a collection of Old and New Testament books were put together by Christians in response to Marcion. So the roots of Joshua go deep. Joshua is the impetus for these discussions. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is scripture? And what do we do with the book of Joshua? So there's ways to read the book of Joshua that I think are significant. And so with that as kind of a backdrop, Let's talk about the lens that we're going to use. We're going to read Joshua through that lens, how the Book of Mormon helps us see how warfare and God's people work together. Now, the one thing the Book of Joshua gets right is the overall
0: principle is that if you want the Lord's help, you do it the Lord's way. That's a governing principle in all of our lives. If you need to sue someone— then if you do it the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If you don't do it the Lord's way, you might win the lawsuit, but you did it on your own without any divine assistance. If you want to enter any conflict at all, if your children need to be disciplined, then if you do it the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If not, you don't. That's the overall rule. And Joshua gets that right. Think about how the text presents the battle of Jericho. They're going to walk around the city with seven priests blowing seven trumpets. They're going to do that for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they're going to do it seven times. Again, the number seven is whole or complete or perfect. And the symbolism here is saying, if you want success to do the impossible, like take down this wall, you have to completely obey God. When they fulfill the commandments that God has given them. They get his help in the battle. Now, in conquering Jericho, they do something wrong. They take the accursed things, or at least one of them takes the accursed things. So the very next battle of Ai, they get slaughtered. And when Joshua is saying, why in the world did we get slaughtered? The Lord says, because you sinned. You didn't follow the instructions. And then the Lord says in Joshua 7 verse 13, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. In other words, if you want my help, you have to do it my way. That's the overall governing principle in conflict. If we want the Lord's assistance, we have to do it the Lord's way. So what does the Book of Mormon present is the Lord's way. How do we do it the Lord's way? And that's why I think the war chapters in the Book of Mormon are so powerful, because they present the right way. We're going to make the assumption that when the Nephites succeed, especially when they're vastly outnumbered, it's because they got the Lord's help. Therefore, we can say, what are the Nephites doing that seems to be the Lord's way? And then what are the Lamanites doing that seem to be the opposite? So, long story short, let me summarize the war chapters in the Book of Mormon into three general rules. Rule number one is you have to have the right attitude or the right emotion in your heart. If you don't have the right attitude or the right emotion, you're not going to get the Lord's help. So, for example, what is in the heart of the Lamanites almost every single time? It's hatred or anger. So you go read the book of Joshua and remember that if hatred and anger is in your heart, you're not going to get the Lord's help. But what do the Nephites do? We're going to put this whole list in the show notes. I have a big, long list. You can go check out the references. We're not going to take the time here. But I want you to notice the attitude of the Nephites. For example, Captain Moroni is so reluctant to fight. He does not want to. He, he says that he's obliged, but he doesn't want to be a man of blood. He doesn't seek blood. He wants to spare life, not destroy it. That's the right attitude, is how can we avoid this conflict? I don't want to hurt. I don't want to cause pain. That's the attitude. The second rule I would list is that you have to have the right motive or you have to be fighting for the right reason. If your motive or your reason for fighting is like the Lamanites' motive and reason for fighting, you are not going to get the Lord's help. Some of the reasons that the Lamanites had for fighting were power. They wanted to put the other group in bondage. They wanted to destroy. They wanted to rule over them. They wanted revenge. And I would say to anyone, especially those on social media who are trying to hurt others or control them or put them down or shame them, or I want bad things to happen to you, you have the wrong motive and your reasons for fighting do not justify the Lord's help. Those are the things that the Lamanites wanted. Now, the other side of that is the Nephites only had three motives. Number one, the Book of Mormon is very clear that their motive was to preserve. Preserve their rights, their religion, their families. In fact, I love that in Alma 43, 30, it says that their only motive was to preserve. Number two, their motive is to defend. Even unto bloodshed, we will defend our families. And then number three, they will protect. Sometimes it's not the attack against me, it's the attack against someone who can't defend themselves, therefore I will protect those who can't defend themselves. But those are the three motives that the Nephites almost always have, especially when the Lord is with them. They preserve, defend, or protect. So, I would say as you read the book of Joshua, you'll come to the conclusion that either the text has been edited— or there's information we're not being presented. Are the Israelites preserving, defending, and protecting? Is that what they're doing? And so qualify for the Lord's help? Because that's not the message we read in the text. And I would say to any of you who need to enter a conflict, and you do so reluctantly, but your, your motive is, I will preserve my family. I will defend righteousness. I will defend good people. I will defend truth. I will protect. Then you're passing rule number two. Now rule number three. In Alma chapter 43, verse 46, it says, They were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God. For the Lord had said unto them and unto their fathers, that inasmuch as you are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second. You shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of the enemy. See, there's the rule. You can't be guilty of the first offense. That means you can't walk over to a city and just destroy the city. You can't be the aggressor. But you also can't be guilty of the second offense. The second offense is the reactor, the one who hits back. You can't hit And you can't be the one that hits back. And I can guarantee that if you're breaking that rule, it's because you're breaking the other two. If you're hitting back, I know what's in your heart. And I can tell you exactly what your motive is if you're hitting back. So the Lord says that's not the way the Lord's people do it. We don't hit back. And now, if you want to elevate that, in the Doctrine and Covenants section 98, after the saints were aggressively attacked in Jackson County, Missouri, the Lord gives this law again in section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and that's where he elevates it even more. He says, my people won't be guilty of the third offense. You can't hit back even when you've been hit twice. And then he even commends us if we choose to not hit back after the fourth offense, if even then we're patient and we collect ourselves and we calmly plan but there is a moment after a certain number of offenses and after we've warned them then we're justified so if you've passed those 3 tests then the lord will be on your side now how you proceed again is under his direction but those are the 3 rules You have to have the right attitude, the right emotion in your heart. Number two, you have to have the right motive or the right reason for fighting. And then number three is you can't be guilty of the second, or according to the Doctrine and Covenants, the third offense. So that being said, either the text of Joshua has been dramatically edited or there is a whole lot of information we're not being presented. Because if they're getting the Lord's help, which Joshua seems to suggest that God is on their side, if they're getting the Lord's help, then I would suggest they had to have passed those three tests. And their heart has the right emotion in it, their mind has the right motive in it, and they are not the aggressors, and they are not the reactors, but they have patiently warned And then finally, after a certain level, is when they are justified and the Lord is with them in entering the conflict. So I would suggest the text has been dramatically edited or there's information held back.
1: What would you say, Mike? Yeah, I think something has happened with this text. Certainly I wasn't there, and so I don't know. But I think that when we take a deep dive into the book of Joshua, we start looking at some of the angles. We see some things that lend to other ways of reading. Briefly, when it comes to ways of reading, reading the text of Joshua, remember, there's at least several ways. One is the Peshat, the literal reading of the text. A second is Ramez, the allegorical reading, Darash, the reading that says, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I apply this text? And finally, the Sod, or the hidden or secret meaning of the text, the way the text helps me understand my relationship with God. And coming unto him, I call the Sod reading often the Temple reading of the text. And I think if we read Joshua through three of the four lenses, I think we're in good shape. But if we try to take it as a literal historical reading of the text, I would suggest that it has problems. You see, archaeologists have gone and they've taken the the Book of Joshua and then they've gone into the ground and they've looked into the cities that are discussed being conquered. And they're finding problems with the archaeology, that the stories don't line up with the evidence in the ground. And so then we start looking at this and say, okay, well, why does it say that they wiped them out? And then what's interesting is, why does it skip cities? You see, the bulk of the narrative of Joshua is really focusing on only conquering a small section of ground. The most detailed part of the story of Joshua's conquest, that's going to be in the core sections of chapters five through eight. It centers on a very small area geographically. It focuses on Jericho, I, and Gilgal. They're all within just a few miles of each other. And the text never mentions Shechem. Well, Shechem is right there, right there in the center And it never even talks about it. And that was a big settled area during the time of the conquest. Why isn't it really discussed? I mean, scholars look at this and they ask these questions. And another thing historians look at when they talk about the book of Joshua is, okay, how did the neighbors of Israel discuss their conquests? And we find a similar thing. For example, during the time that Israel was a state, there are a couple of documents that archaeologists have discovered which ratify the narrative in the Bible, but also shed light on how the Bible portrays the conquest. So, a couple of these. One of these is called the Merneptestella, which was constructed right at the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age. They think it was put together right around 1208 BC. And it's a stella, or a stone, that has writing on it from Egypt's perspective. And it says... A lot of things, but one of the things that it says is it's bragging from the Egyptian perspective that, quote, we wiped out all of the Israelites. Now, they didn't. Israel clearly exists, but that's kind of how they talked in the ancient Near East. If they had a victory, they would say, we wiped them all out, we killed them. Think about your favorite football team. If your team wins the Super Bowl and it's 34 to 21, you would brag to your friends, We destroyed you. And, like, no, you didn't. You won by a couple touchdowns. You certainly didn't destroy us. And the players are certainly still alive. They're collecting their paychecks and they probably got a bonus even for losing the Super Bowl. But we say things like, we wiped you guys out. And another text that says the same kind of thing is from Moab and it's 840 BC. So, right during the time when Israel was a state. And this text is called the Mesha Stone. And it says kind of the same things where they say, hey, we wiped these guys out. And so Richard Elliott Friedman is a Bible scholar, and he talks a lot about this, where he says, that's just kind of how they talked in the ancient Near East. We wiped them out. And if we won, it was because God was with us. And if we lost, it was because God was mad at us. And so I think if we take off our Western lens and we look at the book of Joshua through an ancient lens and we see it from the perspective of the ancient Near Eastern inhabitants, what we see is a different book. And I would suggest that we read it that way. I would suggest that we read the book of Joshua through the lens of the creation as depicted in Genesis. What do we read in Genesis? God divides the sea and he broods over the deep and he takes this chaotic stuff and he blows on it. He blows his spirit into it, and he takes chaos, and he makes it into order. And the text of Joshua kind of does this. There's a couple words that are really interesting. They are herem and toeba. And herem is to remove from common use and to make holy, and toeba is the thing that we need to avoid. And so there's these things in Joshua that the Lord says, hey, we're going to remove this from human use and we're going to make this holy. We're going to harem it. And then there are these things that we don't touch. And one of the things they're told not to touch are the practices of the Canaanites. And then some of the things that they harem are the gold and the silver and the brass of the Canaanites is taken from them and converted into something sacred. And the land The land is removed from the use of the Canaanites, and it's converted into holiness. And so I think if we read it that way, I think it gives us a little bit of wiggle room, a different way to read the book of Joshua. And we're going to get more into this in the podcast, but I think when we look at the text of Joshua as a historical document, and we take it 100% literal we get into some problems. And I think this is what gives atheists so much ammunition. For example, Richard Dawkins has said this. He said, how can you possibly believe in this Megatron who comes down and just wipes out humanity? If that's the God that you worship, I want nothing to do with this God. And I would say to Richard Dawkins, I agree. Like I'm, I see what he's saying. And so if it's not historical or if it's not exactly the way it happened, then what did happen? I think that's the big question that people ask. Like, Okay, what are the origins of Israel and how did Israel come to take the land? And there's a lot of models that are out there and I want to just cover them briefly. The first is that there were some outside invaders, that Israel did come from the outside and they came in and that there was an exodus out of Egypt And in Richard Friedman's book called Exodus, he lays out those arguments, and there are some really good arguments that the book of Exodus does have some historicity, but that perhaps it didn't happen exactly the way it's described in the biblical narrative. Another option when it comes to how Israel came to take the land is that Israel came from the outside as Bedouins, that they were nomads, that they settled the highlands of Israel, and slowly went and took over the land. Prior to the Iron One period, which is about 1200 BC, there were pig bones in the land, meaning archaeologists look into the dirt of the areas and people did eat pig before about 1200. But then after 1200, what archaeologists have found is that there are these settlement sites in the highlands of Israel and people aren't eating pig. Now, What does this prove? I mean, it it doesn't really prove a lot, but I think what a lot of archaeologists say is there is a group of people that are starting to settle in the highlands of Israel right at Iron One that don't eat pig. Well, what do we have in the Bible? Same thing, right? And so they see this as a gradual settlement. In other words, a settlement, but maybe it wasn't necessarily totally violent. That's, That's another option. That's like the second option. Another option is that the individuals that lived in the land became revolutionaries meaning they revolted against their overlords so politically this is what was going on right around that 1200 bc mark the shift from the bronze age to the iron age there were groups of cities in the levant that were subjugated they had to pay tribute to the overlords in egypt and what happened was that there were people in these cities who were chosen by their egyptian masters to be taskmasters over these individuals, meaning they collected tribute, they kind of exerted Egyptian law over these people. And there was this tension at about 1200 BC with these groups that lived in the land of Canaan. And in the text, these texts are called the Amarna letters or the El Amarna letters. And we put some of these actual texts in the slides. You can read them. There are these letters written to the Egyptian leaders, And they say things like this. They say the Aparu, or they're sometimes called the Abaru, that these are the rebels, they're revolting and they won't pay tribute. And we don't know what to do. Send help. We need help. They're revolting against us. And so in scholarship, there are a lot of uh, biblical scholars who see the Aparu or the Abaru as the Hebrews. And so... Was this a revolt of Canaanite revolutionaries? Well, the El Amarna letters seems to indicate that some of that may have been happening. And it's at this time of the exodus, we think, that these things are going on. A fourth option is what if it's a combination of one, two, or all of these ideas? What if there was a group of individuals that were part of an exodus? What if there's also another group of individuals that were Canaanites, the Aparu, that were revolting? And in concert with this, there were other outsiders that came into the land of Israel, and that collectively, their stories coalesced into the Exodus and Joshua narratives— If you're an American, we kind of do the same thing. We kind of have our collective story. We have the story of the pilgrims and we have the story of the colonies and George Washington and the revolt against the British. But perhaps we are not all connected to those stories in our genealogical lines, but we are connected to them through history and culture. And so lots of scholars have looked at all these options and we link some of their arguments in the show notes if this interests you. To me... I think it's important because if we read the book of Joshua with Western eyes and we read it as a history book, we're going to run into some snags. Yeah. One of the great truths I want to jump into is
0: talking about how the Lord guides us. It's a rule of revelation, and it's beautifully illustrated in the book of Joshua. And if I were to gather my family this week and talk about the highlights of the book of Joshua, this is certainly one that I would talk about. I would teach them to get off the beach. Now, what I mean by that is these people are coming out of the desert, Do you remember the desert episode where the Lord rains manna upon them? He has taken them by the hand and guided them. But now that they're in the promised land and they can eat the corn of the land, watch the Lord loosen his grip. First of all, the manna ceases. In chapter 5, starting in verse 11, as they come in, they worship the Passover and they eat the corn of the land. And the very next day, Joshua 5.12, the manna ceased on the morning after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore. In other words, we're out of the wilderness. I don't need to feed you because now you can take care of yourselves. Do you remember when the Jaredites are on their way to America and they go through a very dangerous wilderness where no man had been before? And the text says that they were continually led by the Lord. He is holding their hand the whole time in the wilderness because it's dangerous, kind of like the way you grab a small child's hand when you cross the street. This is dangerous. I'm going to hold your hand very tightly as we walk through this. And then they get to the beach. They're out of the wilderness, and they're sitting on the beach, and they no longer have the problems that the wilderness posed. It's no longer dangerous. It's kind of like when you're done holding your child's hand after you've crossed the busy street, and you get to the other side, and now we're in a neighborhood where there aren't nearly the number of cars, you tend to loosen the grip on your child's hand. And that's exactly what God does on the beach. Because they're no longer in the wilderness, He loosens His hand. And he doesn't tell them all the things that they should do. But the problem is when that day happens and the manna ceases, sometimes we just kind of sit there on the beach for four years like the Jaredites. You see this in wonderful return missionaries. I see missionaries come home from their missions, which is kind of like coming out of the wilderness, right? The Lord held their hand every single day and told them exactly what to do. And then they come home from their missions and the Lord loosens that grip. And they kind of freeze and they don't know what to do because the man is gone.
1: Bryce, I had a conversation with a young woman who said, I felt the Spirit every day on my mission, and she was emotional, and she was saying, essentially, but I'm not feeling it now. Yeah, and missionaries assume they've done something
0: wrong, that I've let the Lord down, that somehow I've disappointed the Lord, and my spirituality is falling, and the reality is, no, 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 you're just not in the wilderness anymore. You're now in the promised land, and there's corn all around you, so the manna ceases. Or you're on the beach, you're out of the wilderness, and so the Lord loosens his grip. It's an act of confidence in you, not an act of disappointment in you, because the Lord says, look, you can now take care of yourselves. But we we struggle with that lesson. We really struggle on the beach because we've gotten so used to being told exactly what to do. We've gotten used to the Lord holding our hands that when that moment comes that there's corn available, we kind of freeze and starve a little bit because the man is gone, and yet I haven't really shouldered the burden of taking care of myself. So, in that setting is this beautiful little story about crossing the Jordan River to come into the promised land. So, in chapter 3, they're now going to leave the desert behind, cross the Jordan River, and come into the promised land, and the Lord says, starting in verse 7, "'The Lord said unto Joshua, "'This day I will begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that it was I.'" that I was with Moses, so shall I be with thee. End of verse 8. When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. Verse 10. Joshua said, Hereby shall ye know that the living God is among you. Now listen to what they have to do. Verse 13. It shall come to pass... As soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the water of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that shall come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. So verse 15, as they that bear the ark were coming to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped into the brim of the water, that's when the water parts. In other words, you have to step into the river. I want you to picture holding that ark. Be a priest of Israel, and you're holding the ark, and you're standing near the edge. How many of us would say to ourselves, okay, Lord, open up the water. Show me what to do, Lord. If you show me what to do, then I'll I'll move forward. But I'm waiting for you to part the water for me to move forward. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works on the beach. That's not how, it, maybe that's how it worked in the desert where there was such lack. But now that you can take care of yourself, now that you're home from your mission, now that you're old enough, or now that you've come out of that experience of handholding, now you need to step into the river in other words you proceed and then i will help you so many of us are waiting for the lord to part the river before
1: we move forward and the lord is saying no you move forward i see this all the time when we talk about this principle because it's not just here and it reminds me of elder oaks's talk where he says revelation comes when we're on the move exactly step into the river
0: I teach a class on dating here at the Institute, and one of the concepts I try to teach is that if you're waiting for the Lord to bring you a spouse, it's probably not going to happen. If you're standing on the edge of the river waiting for the Lord to show you exactly what to do and how to find your spouse, you're probably going to sit there for four years like the Jaredites. But if instead you will march forward to the very best of your ability, and if you will step into the river. Now, I know some of you have to step a ways into the river. Some of you wade way out into it. Lord, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to keep moving forward. I know some of you get the river all the way up to your neck. And it's like, Lord, here I go. I'm going to go as far as I can. But eyewitness and the Scriptures promise that the Lord will not let you drown. He will come. That's what the Scriptures seem to teach. you remember the widow of Zarephath was gathering sticks for her final meal when the Lord sent the prophet to her? The, the disciples were rowing on the boat all throughout the night, even into the fourth watch, and then Jesus came walking. You may need to wade out into the river. And it may seem scary and you might feel alone, but I promise at some point the Lord will part the river. But don't stand on the beach. When the manna ceases because you're no longer in a hand-holding experience, don't sit on the beach. Get going. The Jaredites had built barges while they were going through the wilderness. They knew how to build barges. They had the materials that they needed to build barges, but they just sat there waiting for the Lord to hold their hand. And he's not going to do that. We need to be the kind of people that step into the river on our own and expect God to come with us. And that's when revelation happens, when we're moving forward. I love that lesson, and I would sit down with my children more my class this week, and that's one lesson I would teach very powerfully, is that we need to stop sitting on the beach and waiting for the Lord to open up the way in front of us. We need to go forward
1: and do all that we can to clear that path ourselves. Excellent, Bryce. That is a great example of the darash reading of the text. In other words... How does the text apply? How can we take some of the lessons of Joshua and live the scriptures? And so getting away from this historical Peshat reading and certainly not looking at this as an instruction, as marching orders to annihilate our enemies, you know, Bryce is looking at, okay, what can we get out of this? And I think that's a really good principle. Move forward and and don't just, like you say, sit around. Okay, let me do another one. If I had another moment with my children, or if
0: I had a second day on my class, if I'm teaching seminary and you want to have a second day, I would have a wonderful discussion on what mean these stones. I think there is a powerful lesson on reading Scriptures and why we read Scriptures and why we study the Old Testament in the story of what mean these stones. So the children of Israel are going to cross the Jordan River, And it's going to remind them about how their ancestors crossed the Red Sea. So as they cross the Jordan River, the Lord tells one person from each tribe to grab a rock, grab a stone. I would guess it's probably a big one. And then bring them up into the other side. So grab a stone, and then they build a monument with it. And the reason they build a monument is to remind them what the Lord did. Now, let's read it very carefully. Joshua chapter 4, verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, what mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. Now, listen to verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the rivers of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us. It's almost like past generations are speaking, the whole Book of Mormon, thousand years of Nephite history, all of Israelite history, all of the Jews in Jesus's day, the man with the leprosy, everyone who was a recipient of the Savior's miracles in the New Testament are rising up and saying, what the Lord did to us, he will do to you. And those stones were a monument to it. And what the scriptures are screaming out that everyone needs to understand is that the God who did wonderful things in the lives of someone in the past will do wonderful things in your life. And that we should expect those miracles because we are just as important to God as anyone ever was. We should expect him to do the miracles. Do you remember when the man full of leprosy in Luke chapter 5 approaches Jesus and says, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What he was saying is, I know you can. I just don't know if you will. And what these stones mean is that he will. If he did it in the past, he'll do it again to you. He will bless you. And so when we open up the scriptures, That's the spirit of that question. What meaneth these stones? Why study the scriptures? Why study the book of Joshua? Why study the Old Testament? Why read any scripture at all? And it's the voice of every miracle that ever happened in the past is saying, these stones are a memorial that what God did to us, he will do to you. Trust him and expect that blessing. And I think that's a wonderful story. I would bring in a bunch of stones. And as my students walked in the the room or as my children walked into the living room and said, Dad, what are these stones for? I'd say, excellent question. Let's talk about what these stones mean. And I would teach them that lesson. That everything that God did in the past, He will do in the future. Which is why Moroni, at the culmination at the very end of the Book of Mormon, chapter 10 says, when you receive these things, you need to remember all the wonderful things that God has done in the past. Because you getting the Book of Mormon is a symbol that He's going to do them again. He's going to do them in your life. So what meaneth these stones? Everything. Everything.
1: You know, Bryce, as an aside, they're putting these stones together and they're doing this at a place called Gilgal, which is kind of fun. There's like some fun dad jokes going on here. So if you look in the fifth chapter, verse nine where it says, the Lord said to Joshua this day, have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you? There's the pun. Wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. That is a dad joke. And so it's sacred to the ancient near Eastern people. I've rolled away the reproach and we're going to call it Gilgal. You see Gilgal is really cool. It means a wheel or it can mean rolling or it can mean a circle. And so there are a lot of biblical scholars that see this as a section of stones. There's 12 of them that are in a circular pattern. And there are actually some interesting landmarks in Israel. One of them is Galgal Rephaim, the wheel of the ghosts. That's actually located in the Golan Heights. And it's concentric circles that were constructed in stones. And I can't help but think about Stonehenge. I mean, Who knows how that's connected? Now, this is Robert Alter's assessment of this. He says, Gilgal was an important cultic site in the first two centuries of the monarchy, and it figures significantly in the stories of Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. As with other sacred places in ancient Israel, it may have been a locus of pagan worship before it was taken over by the Israelites. There is some likelihood, Alter says, that the stones arrayed in a circle were originally matzevot or cultic steles, and that the story is framed to make them integral to the monotheistic narrative. Now, that's Robert Alter's perspective, and I certainly appreciate his work on this, but I just want to add something to what he said. You see, I would suggest that perhaps this circular stone construction is perhaps the original form of how the Israelites perceive their connection to Yahweh. What if this circular arrangement of these 12 stones— was a way of representing how they viewed opening the heavens. What if this idea of a circular pattern of 12 priests, or I might say priests and priestesses, in a circular pattern was the connection for thanking God for their blessings and crossing over boundaries. You see the Jordan River is the boundary. The water is the boundary. They're crossing over from outside space, to sacred space. And so if you want to pull on that thread, we link a great paper by Hugh Nibley called The Early Christian Prayer Circle, where he analyzes some really interesting things. In fact, right out of the gate on the second page of his paper, he quotes the Acts of John. And as I read the Acts of John in his paper, and I analyze this boundary marker Circular stones where there are 12 priests thanking God entering sacred space. I can't help but just say there's something going on here because this isn't the only place in Joshua where they're setting up circular patterns of stones. And I think Bryce is onto something when he says, what mean these stones? Or as the, literally as the text says, what are these stones to you? It's interesting that in the Hebrew, these stones are an alt, which is a sign or a token and the Greek keeps that idea with Simeon. It's a sign or a token. And that to me is a code word. When I see that in the context of crossing boundaries, Simeon or Ot, that's temple stuff. And so I think what if Joshua is saying something other than what it's saying? In other words, what if it's coded? And I think if we read Joshua that way, we don't get caught up in the literalist Western view of, oh my goodness, all this slaughter, which can be kind of disheartening. But if we read it the other way, like Bryce is saying, hey, what are some lessons I can pull out of this? Or what's going on with these stones in a circular pattern at a place called Gilgal where they're rolling off the stuff in Egypt and we're rolling into a new space?
0: And that's very in line with how Joshua's going to end as he gets to the end of his life. He's going to over and over and over again say choose you, who will you serve? Are you going to serve the people of the land? Are you going to serve the gods of the Canaanites? Are you going to do what they did? And here we are, just like the people of Joshua, coming into mortality, surrounded by the world. Do we become what the world is, or do we fight the world back and become a peculiar people? Do we choose God or do we choose to live after the ways of the world? So Joshua really is a temple text, not the conqueror of Canaan, but the conquering of the natural man. And you're going to see elements of that temple motif, that we are coming into this place, we're coming onto this sacred earth, and we're supposed to conquer the natural man and the chaos of this world, or the division. We're supposed to conquer the division of this world and be one. We're supposed to. Come to that circle of unity and choose God
1: and not the gods of mortality. Excellent. So with all of this, I want to add another reading of these chapters in Joshua, a sowed or a mystical reading of the text or what I like to call a temple-centered reading of Joshua. And so right out of the gate, what if Joshua is a type for Jesus? We read this story of this leader who comes and follows Moses. And his name is Joshua, or we could say Yehoshua. Or if we're reading the Greek text of the Old Testament, his name is Yesus. What's interesting is Jesus's name is spelled the exact same way. It's Jesus. It's the Greek rendering of Yehoshua. Yahweh is salvation. So Joshua's name, meaning Yahweh is salvation, in Greek Is the name for Jesus. And so early Christian readers of the book of Joshua, knowing the struggles that Joshua presents, they looked at this conquering of the land as the conquering of sin, that Jesus came to lead us in the victory against the natural man or as the leader against sin. And so, in one way, we can see the conquering of Jericho as Jesus conquering sin and death. Let me take you to the geography of the land. I believe that understanding the topography of the land, especially as the ancient saw it, will probably help us modern readers to see that Joshua is a type for Jesus. So, for example, if you go to Jericho or where Jericho was, it was 800 feet below sea level and the lowest inhabited city on the earth. In other words, it's the underworld. And so this is the city that Joshua is to overcome by circumnavigating the city of Jericho in a ring dance 7 times with the priests. This is all Joshua chapter 6 in the first bit there in the first 5 verses. And so Jesus and Joshua conquered death. Joshua is doing this from a typological perspective. Joshua is taking this city that's at the lowest space on the earth. And so it represents the underworld and Jesus, the cosmic King is saving us from death and hell. He descends to the underworld. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. His spirit goes into the underworld in this descent and he conquers death and hell. In the words of the famous hymn, death is conquered. Man is free. Christ has won the victory. So then Then we get into this story of Rahab, this woman that the Israelites meet right there at the outskirts of the city of Jericho. And her name can mean a lot of things, but one of the things that it can mean is wide or broad or spacious. And I just want to put a pin in that for a minute, but they meet her and then it says that they give unto her kindness. This is Joshua chapter two, verse 12. This is what it says. She says to them, Now, therefore, I pray, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Now, we translated this for you in the show notes, but the main point I want to illuminate is that idea for kindness is chesed. She says, I've shown you chesed. I want you to show me Hesed. And Hesed is that mercy or divine love. It's Hosea 6 6, this deep and abiding love that God has for his children. And I see this in connection with the token, meaning that in this situation, she is essentially saying, I want to be tied to you. And we could say that Rahab is a symbol for those outside of Israel that are definitely. Outside of the order of creation, they're Toeba, and God's going to take Rahab, and he's going to bring her into the inner circle. So what if Rahab can mean a lot of things? What if Rahab can mean the Gentile nations as Paul sees it? What if Rahab can mean that which is chaotic, God is going to bring into an orderly space? That's a possible interpretation of these ideas. And the token that they're discussing is actually a scarlet cord. And it would deliver everyone out of Rahab's house. There's this scarlet cord that's to deliver Rahab and her entire house, and it's coming out of her window. And then there's this connection to the ideas of the Passover. I mean, we're still in chapter two. So if you look in verse 17, it talks about an oath. In verse 18, in the third line, we read about the scarlet thread. And then in the 19th verse, it talks about saving their house. And then it talks about the blood of those required in verse 19. There's this idea of blood, the house, the scarlet thread. And then verse 21 says this, and she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet line in the window. And then there's this three-day waiting period. What if all of this is tied into the Passover? And as we discussed this earlier in Exodus 12, what if the author of Joshua is trying to paint a picture using similar motifs to point our hearts back to that? And then I would read this through the lens of Jacob 4.5, where Jacob says, all the prophets knew who Jesus was. Now, it doesn't say Jesus in here. Well, it does in the Greek. Yes, you we me back to that. But it doesn't in your face say that this scarlet thread is the atonement. But I think that it's inviting interpretation. Do you see this beautiful
0: symbolism? If you look at this symbolically, it's that this city's going to be destroyed like the world is going to be destroyed. And if we really do take Rahab as a sinner, I know she's listed as a, a harlot. If we take Rahab as a sinner, we've got to save the sinner with a red line. We've got to reach into the wicked city and pull the sinner out using a red line. Boy, if you just don't see Jesus all over that, I think you've kind of missed the symbolism here that we're reaching into the world. Missionaries go out to the world and we grab the Rahabs of the world with the atonement and we pull them out of the world. Beautiful symbolism here.
1: This is kind of outside of our discussion, but we'll get to it when we get to Isaiah. But Rahab is also the personification of the chaos dragon. And so God's going to bring that into his creative order. So I I see that as a possible connection. Those of you that are Isaiah fans, you know, you might be going, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. Some of you are like, what is Mike talking about? Mike's crazy again. So we'll get to that later. So we're just going to put a pin in that one for, you know, a couple months. But back to the narrative. So after this they leave and they hide out for 3 days and then Joshua in the next chapter the 3rd chapter says, "Hey, we're going to sanctify ourselves. We're going to do this stuff where the Lord is going to say in verse 7, "I'm going to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel." They bear the ark and they go over on dry ground. That's a crossing. And in the midst of this, we talked about the 12 stones and literally, Jesus or Joshua are a second Moses, right? And so then they put the stones in the circular pattern as we've discussed. And I'm going to connect that idea to all the stuff Hugh Nibley's talking about in the early Christian prayer circles as a form of inviting revelation and thanking God. And then the stones are to be a witness of God's mighty power to teach children. And right in the midst of this, Right in the midst of these stones, look in chapter five, they make a covenant. All those that had not been circumcised are circumcised. So that's going to be in verse five and seven and smack dab in the middle of those two verses. We have this reference to the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Now that's back to the Holy of Holies, the tree that it has white and sweet fruit, the land of milk and honey. And in the midst of that discussion, They have a ritual meal. They eat the Passover. Chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, it's their last miraculous meal before they come into the land to stay. And I would suggest that it's all related to the temple, that the milk and honey has connection to the coming into God's presence and the ritual eating and covenanting with God have to do with the second room of the temple, the holy place. In the holy place, in the first Israelite temple, they would have a ritual meal preparatory to coming into the presence of the Lord. Now, today, we practice that when we take our modern-day Passover meal. We eat the sacrament every Sunday when we come to church. And that is indicative of us, once again, think about the connection to covenant and to prepare ourselves to entering into the presence of the Lord. And then, it's at this point, at the end of chapter 5, that we have this man verse 13, that he comes with a sword drawn in his hand. And in the Hebrew, he is called an ish, and in the Greek, he is called an anthropon. He's clearly a man, at least as it's translated here. And then he's called the captain of the Lord's hosts. And then it says, for Joshua to take off his shoes, for the place whereon he stands is holy ground. That's chapter five, verse 15. You got to read that and go, oh my goodness, what are we talking about? Well, there's Moses. Moses is meeting the Lord. So it doesn't say that it's a divine being. So there's a lot of ink spilled on this. Like, who is this guy? Some people say, well, perhaps it's Jesus. Some people see it as a divine warrior. God is portrayed as a divine warrior in the earliest Israelite literature. And so I don't know. I would suggest that this could represent a divine being from another order, a higher order, or as a priest— introducing Joshua into the presence of the Lord. I think that could be a really good temple way of reading this as an Ascension text. Joshua is going to lead them into sacred space. And I can't get away from this. Once again, it's Jesus. Like, what is Jesus's job? He is to take us and lead us into sacred spaces. And what if this is that idea or that connection? I, I think the text invites interpretation, but it certainly is ambiguous. But with that in mind, Go to chapter 6, with the ark, the sign of God's presence, they are then in silence for six days. Notice verse 10, you shall not shout nor make any noise. And it reminds me of that verse in section 88, when it talks about when the king will come, there will be silence in heaven. Let's read that verse. Verse 95, and there
0: shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And immediately after the curtain of heaven is unfolded.
1: What if this is coming into the presence of the king? I think about when the prophet who represents the Lord, when he walks into the room, everyone stands and we're to be quiet. That isn't just tradition. I think that's rooted in theological discussions of who the prophet represents. And perhaps, you know, I wasn't there back then, but perhaps anciently when the king walked into a space, everyone stood up and there was silence to respect that office I see that as a possible interpretation of verse 10 of chapter six. In other words, we're ritually entering into the presence of the king. And then finally, on the seventh day the walls come down, the created order is changed as the text says, that they put to the ban or they devoted to destruction all that was in the city. That's chapter six, verse 21. And that word is harem, and that word has to do with putting things to the ban. John Walton has written a lot on this. He says, putting things in the land to the ban, it has to do with having these items removed from human use and not necessarily concerned with killing. And so by doing this through herem, the Israelites are devoting these items to God rather than using them for human use. So these items that were outside the created order are put to use for God. I think that's a good way to read that, which then leads us to other bits of the text where it talks about the silver, the gold, and the brass are taken and they're put into the treasury and Rahab's house is saved. That is connected to this idea as well. She was outside the creative order and now she's in it. And then finally... The text of Joshua doesn't say it, but the idea that the king would ritually circumnavigate Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles with the Ark and their singing with the priests and the followers of Yahweh in a holy procession, all of that's happening in Joshua. Now, it doesn't make those connections, but it's inviting that reflection. And so I think that perhaps these first six, six or so chapters in Joshua are are teaching this idea that Yahweh is the cosmic king who's going to conquer death and hell. He's going to bring the created order to its rightful place. And Jesus is going to end tyranny and place justice and truth on the throne. And in this case, the throne is taken by Jesus, or Jesus, the one true king. I mean, Bryce, we have almost all the pieces here. We have the name of the leader. It's Jesus. We have Hesed the token connected to God's mercy and the token of the blood of the lamb, essentially with that cord. We have ritual eating and covenanting. We have a circular pattern of remembrance and possible prayer. I'm going to say that. And a change in order from chaos to holiness and the salvation of Rahab, who's clearly outside the created order. She's brought into a state of sanctification. I mean, essentially, if we read Joshua 1 through 6 this way, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how the early Christians looked at this. And so I like that. I think that's relevant stuff. And if you were teaching a gospel doctrine class, you could hit some of those points and get away from the literalist messiness of it and see some really cool things in here. Now watch the beauty of how it ends. Do you remember 2 Nephi chapter 2
0: where Lehi basically says, look, here's the plan and here's agency, and here's Jesus, and the fall, and the creation, and everything that you need to be saved has been laid before you. Jesus has conquered the awful monster of sin and death, and now Lehi says, choose you this day. Are you going to follow him, or are you going to not follow him? And that's how Joshua ends. If you see the book of Joshua in light of this symbolism that Jesus is the one that conquers mortality, that Canaan represents death and sin and all the things that are trying to destroy our souls, and that Joshua comes in and conquers those things and brings peace to the land, now the question on the table is, are you going to choose to follow Christ or not? Are you going to go back to Sodom like Lot's wife? or are you going to choose to follow Christ? And so the book of Joshua ends with that question on the table. So as you read the last two chapters of Joshua, many years later, when peace has been established, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And that's a fitting end to this book. If you see kind of the symbolic conquering of death and sin choose to follow Jesus. He's done everything that he needs to do. Now the rest is up to you. So Joshua leaves us by saying, as for me and
1: my house, we will choose the Lord. So with that, we come to a close. We appreciate your time that you shared with us today. And next week, we will be in the book of Judges. We'll see you next week.